There's a lot going on this week, and as always, there's a lot, a lot of ways that you can spend your, sorry, Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock, and uh, I don't take it for granted that you're here and really thankful that you come and spend your time with us. So thanks for being here tonight. Uh, if you've been coming this semester, you'll know that we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at this question of who is Jesus. And tonight we're going to continue our study and we're going to look at Jesus and his way or his calling. And we're going to do that through Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible um, or you can look on with someone, I encourage you to do that because we're going to look at a few other passages surrounding it tonight to get the context. Or you can look on your phone. If you have the Bible on your phone, that would be helpful as well. Um, Several years ago, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune, and it was about a man by the name of Marcio Del Silva. And Del Silva was a love-struck Brazilian uh, who was completely undone and had become unraveled by the ending of a four-year relationship with the love of his life. And so in order to win back his former girlfriend's affections and to win back her love, he did the unthinkable. In an extreme act of devotion, he gets down on his knees and decides to walk nine miles on his knees to her house. And he found some car tires that had evidently been blown out or whatever, and he wrapped them around his knees... Uh, because they were so bloodied uh, from walking on his knees for so long. Uh, It it became a spectacle. Uh, People are rolling down their windows and they're cheering him on in his love walk. People start lining the road. They're hanging over overpasses and cheering him on. News stations have gotten wind of this and it, it becomes big news in this town. And so 14 hours later, He arrives at his former girlfriend's house. As you can imagine, thoroughly exhausted, knees bloodied and bruised. And when he arrives, the 19-year-old love of his life is not impressed. Not at all. In fact, she had heard that he was coming and intentionally left the house so that she would not have to see him. (laughs) She's obviously, this woman, was not moved by this man's extreme act of devotion. She was not moved or affected by his love or attempts to win back her affection. Guess what? God is like that. God is like that. What do I mean by that? Well, friends, God is not impressed with our attempts to win his love and affection in favor. God, the Bible says, opposes the proud. He is not moved as we boast and parade our goodness in front of him. And so then the question becomes, if our own goodness and good deeds do not move the heart of God, what does? If our goodness doesn't move God, what moves God? That's the question that we're going to look at through this passage in Mark chapter 10 tonight. What moves the heart of God? 
Before we answer that question through this passage, let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, in heaven you have been uh, speaking to us very directly through the book of Mark. Uh, Your word, um, you tell us, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that it would be sharper than any two-edged sword tonight as you come through your spirit and minister to us and apply this passage to our hearts. Lord, would you be present I pray that um, you would convince us that we're a bigger mess than we realize, while at the very same time convincing us um, that in you is more love and grace and mercy than we could ever imagine. Help us tonight and, and help us to see Jesus and really what the gospel and the reason why it's such good news. Convince us of that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this passage is an interesting passage because it obviously had a tremendous impact on the disciples. Why did it have such an impact? Why would I say that? Well, it is included in every gospel account except for the book of John. And in other gospel accounts, it says that if you were to look at them, that the disciples weren't just astonished, They were exceedingly astonished or greatly astonished. And so one of the questions that we automatically need to ask when looking at this passage, why is this such a big deal? Why is it so astonishing to the disciples as they witnessed this interaction with Jesus and this rich man? Why did God put it in Three out of the four Gospels. Why was it such a big deal for the disciples that they would want us to hear this so badly? And the answer to that question can simply be stated like this. What the disciples were hearing Jesus say was this. People that have it all together, that look good on the outside, aren't necessarily Christians. People that have it all together aren't necessarily Christians. You see, the Bible comes and Jesus comes and he reverses everything you and I instinctively think about who's in and who's out in the kingdom of God. The disciples are clearly taken with this man. They were were taken by him. And think about it this way. This man must have been so intimidating as he walked up. So grand, so personable, full of personality, so pious, holy, in control of his spiritual life. You can imagine him looking the part, being very attractive. People were drawn to him in some way. And the disciples are standing back thinking, man, this guy has got it going on. And yet, they see Jesus send him away empty-handed. Friends, this passage is an all-out attack by Jesus on self-sufficiency. Remember, you've heard me say things like this before, but when we read and study our Bibles, context, context, context. Context is everything. And remember, the original readers, as they're reading this, which in the original language was in the Greek, 
the original readers would see this, and there were not, these are things that we've added, which is helpful, but they did not see these divisions saying Jesus and the children, or divisions of the rich ruler, or verse divisions. And so they could see the context very, very clearly. And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 13, verses 13 through 16, if you have your Bible open. Right before this passage, we see the interaction and the story of Jesus and the little children. And anytime a gospel writer or any writer in the Bible puts something side by side, sometimes when they do that, they are getting us and wanting us to see a contrast. Because seeing the contrast actually helps us see the main point of the passage. And so think about it. Jesus and the little children... And this arrogant, prideful, rich young ruler. You see, the point of Jesus and the children, despite what you grew up thinking, is not about the misunderstanding of the disciples. The point of that passage, rather, is the passiveness and the weakness and the helplessness of the children. And so this passage of the rich ruler follows that and further illustrates for us that following Jesus is about becoming like a child. Think about a child. Someone does everything for them. They're helpless. They're weak. They are passive. Following Jesus is about helplessness and weakness. It's not about self-sufficiency. And so this passage tonight, if that's what following Jesus is about, this passage teaches us three things. We need to repent of our goodness. We need to release our idols. And thirdly, rest in His power and not our own. So we need to repent, release, and rest. Let's look at number one, repent of our goodness. Look at verses 17 and 18. This man obviously wants to be near to Jesus. He wants something from Jesus. And look at what he says in those verses. Good teacher, listen closely. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He shows his cards right off the bat, doesn't he? The words I do and inherit inherit, reveal to us his view very clearly about what he thinks a relationship with God is. To him, it's not about grace, it's about what he does. He has a very man-centered approach to Christianity and to a relationship with Jesus. And they see, you see this exchange here. And Jesus finally looks and says, so you want eternal life. And look at what Jesus says. Okay, then keep the commandments. And he starts going through the commandments one by one. And look at how the rich man responds. He shows his cards yet again. He's standing before God himself. And he basically says, been there, done that, Jesus. I've got it. All those things I have done since I was a boy. And when we think about a relationship with God and we think about following Him, we normally instinctively think if we are distant from God in some way, 
Maybe we're struggling spiritually or maybe we're discouraged and we think about our relationship with God. One of the things we often think is, okay, I got to get back on the right track. And that means I've got to stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things so that I can be close to Jesus again and walk with Him more closely. That's what the Bible, when we think about that idea of stopping something and starting something, that's what the Bible talks about when it uses the word repentance. Repentance is a turning from something back to God. But when we think of repentance, often the thing we think of is i got to stop doing the really bad things. And do we need to stop doing the really bad things? Yes, that's part of repentance. But oftentimes we think of it only in those terms of the bad things. But Jesus says, and we see that here, that you also have to repent of the good things in your life. And what I mean by that, of the things that you're looking to that are good, that make you feel right and make you feel holy. And so my question tonight is this, could it be that the things that you and I need to turn from or repent of tonight are the things that we like most about ourselves? Could it be that the things that we actually need to repent of are the good, our own goodness that we're looking to to make us feel right? The things we like most about ourselves. What is that for you? How do you figure that out? Well, here's how you figure it out. Let's, let's, say that you, let's say the wheels come off in your life in some way. Or let's say things aren't going well for you or you let yourself down. Or you blow it big time. What do you do in order to make yourself acceptable to God and acceptable to other people again? You know, what ends up happening is often we end up having this self-dialogue, this self-talk that goes something like this. Well, you know, I know I blew it and I know I'm not doing great, but I'm not that bad. At least I'm not like that person I know. At least I don't blank. And whatever you fill in the blank with tonight, that's what you need to repent of. For example, at least I don't sleep around. Or at least I'm not struggling with an addiction like that person I know. Or at least I don't tear down people with my words and gossip like that person. Or at least I don't lose my temper. You see, if this passage says anything to us tonight, it says that those things might very well be our biggest problem. How so? And, and why would I say that? Well, friends, if you look at the Bible, one thing is crystal clear. Jesus hates pride. Jesus hates self-sufficiency. Because what that reveals is that you and I are holding on to a shred of our own righteousness. And Jesus wants us to get rid of that and depend and to throw ourselves wholly and fully on Him. 
Because self-righteousness and holding on to righteousness of our own keeps us from Him. And I think the story is very clear in this passage. Because think about the rich man. Remember the story. Jesus is not moved when we parade our goodness in front of Him with hopes of doing better in the future. God is moved by brokenness. God is moved by desperation and weakness. God is moved when we give up hope in everything else but Him. And you've heard me say this a lot this semester. The Gospel is not good advice. It's good news. And you want to hear some really good news? It's the Gospel says that our desperation and our brokenness is the very, I want you to hear this, is the very thing that actually turns God's heart towards your own. Your desperation and weakness and brokenness is the thing that turns God and makes Him move towards you. That's incredible. That is incredible because in your desperation and in your weakness and brokenness, Jesus does not move away. He actually moves towards. What we see here is that strength and self-righteousness are actually enemies of Jesus. They're enemies of the gospel. You see, when you can finally despair, finally give up hope in yourself and in your own goodness and own righteousness, then you will finally meet the real Jesus. And until then, like the rich ruler, Jesus will just be one more thing on the list of good qualities about you. Secondly, release our idols. Look at verse 21. Jesus is God. We've talked about that a lot this semester. So he knows this man hasn't kept the commandments because he knows all things. But he asked him and he says, okay, you say you've kept the commandments. Let's start with number one. That's what he does, right? Have no other gods before me. He says, to G, he says to this man, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Sidebar. We need to be careful here as we interpret this passage. Jesus is not throwing down a universal requirement for everyone in this room that claims to be a Christian to abandon all of their possessions and go follow him and give all of your money away. That's not what this is saying. How do we know that? Well, because look at the rest of the Bible and God doesn't, Jesus' interaction with people, he doesn't call everyone to do this exact same thing. This is this man's specific situation. And what we can take away from this is that Jesus always seems to go after the one thing in a person's life that is taking priority over him. Always. Look throughout the Gospels. He goes after the thing in someone's life that they are looking to as their Savior. That they are looking to to give them life and security. And that's what he does here in this passage with the rich man. Jesus puts his finger on this man's idol and he goes after it. And one of the things we can pick up from this that I, that I found very interesting as I was studying this passage is Jesus sees people differently than we do, doesn't he? 
I mean, think about this passage. You and I often get caught up on the exterior in a person's life. Jesus sees past the exterior straight to a person's heart and straight into their soul. For example, he doesn't see a nice, obedient, clean, rich man that's well put together. No, Jesus sees someone who is miles away from God because he has made money his God and his Savior. How do we know? Look at verse 21. Doesn't say Jesus looked at this man and was happy for him. Jesus looked at this man and had compassion on him. What does Jesus see when he looks at us tonight as students at the University of Mississippi? What does he see? Well, he doesn't see people who are put together. He sees people who are trying hard to convince themselves that they're enough and that they have enough. He sees people that are weak and broken and filled with anxiety but scared to death to show anyone else. Friends, Jesus tonight sees into our heart. He sees into my heart. And He wants to go after the idol. The thing in your life that you're looking to save you. And so my question is, what is it for you? What is the thing tonight that Jesus is putting his finger on in your life? And when you think about an idol, don't just think of a golden statue that, of course, that you're worshiping. That's not often what it looks like for us today. An idol is anything you're looking to for life outside of Jesus. Anything that you're looking to to deliver you or to give you relief from the pain and hurt and confusion, confusion of living in a broken, fallen world. It is the thing in your life that you are plugging into to make you feel alive. How do you diagnose your idols? Well, a couple of real practical ways. One question is, what is the thing in your life that you believe will really... not get, Don't give me the right answer. What do you think, is you, if you're really honest, will really make you happy? What is the thing that if you got it, you would say, life would work for me? Life would finally have meaning if I had that. And it could be a billion different things. John Calvin's famous for saying, our hearts are idol factories, constantly cranking out new idols to bow down to and endure. So it could be comfort or approval or image or wealth or success or pleasure or relationships or possessions or family. It could be anything and everything. But another way, and a way I like to think about the idolatry in my own heart, is this. One of the ways you know something is an idol is what happens to you when that idol gets blocked. What happens when that idol gets pushed on or threatened or taken away from you in some way? You see, what often ends up happening is when our idols get threatened or we don't get what we want, we don't have the ac academic success, or we don't get the achievement that we want and don't get into maybe a grad school or get the job 
or get into that certain social group, or we don't get the approval that we want, or the relationship that we dreamed of doesn't pan out, what happens inside your soul then? That will reveal your idols. Do you get sad? It's okay to be sad, but does it undo you? Completely undo you? Are you frustrated or depressed or disappointed? Does it rob you of all joy? You see, the rich ruler, when Jesus poked on his idol and asked him to let it go, it made him sad. What is it in your life when it's taken away from you makes you sad? That will reveal your idols. What does God have his finger on in your life? And will you go away sad when Jesus asks you to give something up and to actually follow him in faith? Thirdly, and finally, rest in his power. Look at verses 24 and 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God might have heard that verse before. There has been lots and lots of ink throughout the history of Christianity spilled on that one verse. But let me just summarize it for you. It's very simple. Don't complicate this. The point, this is an illustration that Jesus is looking at and using simply to demonstrate the impossibility of the rich man to gain eternal life on his own strength. He's basically saying this rich man cannot save himself any more than a camel can go through the eye of a needle. Look at verse 26. Those who heard this said, who then can be saved? Why that question? Their grit is the Old Testament. And so they're thinking wealth put together... This man has favor with God. He has been blessed because he's wealthy by God. And so they're looking at this man saying, Jesus, we don't get it. Because if this guy can't get in, how in the world are we going to get in? It's their hope for anyone. And boom, there it is. That is the question that Jesus had been wanting them to ask the entire time. Verse 27, look at his response. What is impossible with men is possible with God. You see it? Jesus is saying it is impossible for anyone, rich, poor, whatever, to save themselves. Jesus is saying here that the only way you and I or anyone gets to heaven is if Jesus does it all. You see, unless God is the author of your salvation, unless the Holy Spirit comes and applies that salvation to your heart, then you and I don't have a prayer. Christianity says that from beginning to end, it's all grace. And that brings us full circle. If you look back up at verse 15, if you have your Bible open, The kingdom of God, remember Jesus' point, is not about strength. 
It's not about riches, but it's, like, it's about becoming like a child. Verse 15. Now this should make more sense to you. I tell you the truth, that anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, what Jesus is telling us tonight is that Christianity and life with him is about helplessness. It's about giving up hope in everything else but him. And friends, I want to be gentle here. But if helplessness, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself as well, but if helplessness is not the theme of our life, we're in big trouble. And unfortunately, we live in a community here at Ole Miss that is tailor-made to keep you from Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, think about life here. Life here is about running with the right people. Life here is about having it all together and looking a certain way. And the unfortunate thing is life here is not about helplessness, but it's about self-sufficiency. It's about being first and being the best. And the kingdom of God is about being last and being a servant to all. You see, the bad news is that oftentimes the way we live and the environment in which we find ourselves is totally contrary to the kingdom of God. You know, the real tragedy of this story is the man was looking straight into the eyes of eternity himself. And he walked away. And so my question for you as we close, is real hope, eternity himself, Jesus Christ, is staring you right in the face tonight through the person of Jesus Christ. And my question is, will you embrace him or will you walk away sad like the man in the story? You think about that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you give us...